so riding around on a scooter is hard, but it's like three times as hard when you have Lyme disease, basically. Well, at least, gonna... at least. <laughs> at least. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 345. Paris may be home to the Mona Lisa, the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower, amazing cheese and baguettes, sacre cœur, and 2.2 million people. But Paris is the world's largest city that does not have one of these. Stick around until the end of the show and I'll give you your answer. Here's a hint. It's one of the reasons Parisians are such crazy drivers. I have taken my Tortuga backpack all around the world with me, but there is one place that I've taken it that was by far the fanciest place my Tortuga has ever been. And that is when we rolled up to the Park Hyatt Vendome in Paris. Now, this is a hotel that costs $1,000 a night. Of course, we were using points. We weren't paying $1,000 a night. What do you think I am, crazy? Rolled up to the Park Hyatt Vendome, and there I was with my Tortuga backpack. So if you're someone who's sitting there thinking, all right, well, this backpack is only for people who are backpacking, you know, your traditional backpack, maybe grittier travel. Nope, nope, nope. If you want the best travel carry-on backpack, one that you can feel comfortable rolling up to a $1,000 night hotel with, you can check it out, tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use that promo code EPOP. That will get you 10% off your entire order. And despite the fact that I spent two nights in a $1,000 a night hotel, I think anyone who knows me or is listening to this podcast would agree that I am decidedly not high class or not usually high class. But on those times where I do have to dress up and I do have to look good, I am super thankful for the team over at Bluffworks. They've got amazing chinos that I wear all around the world and that can be worn down with t-shirts or hoodies, but they also have an incredible travel blazer. So the times where I am going to the theater in London, I can dress up in my Bluffworks, I can make sure I look the part. Even if I'm not usually high class, I could dress up a bit. I have my Bluffworks chinos. I have my Bluffworks blazer. Whether you dress them up, whether you dress them down there, the perfect travel clothing. So if you want to check that out, you can go over to bluffworks.com slash epop. You can also use the promo code epop, and that will get you 10% off any of their non-sale items. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who in one minute and seven seconds can teach you how to speak fake French, who just completed an eight-week, 2,500-mile trip around France on a little red scooter going 30 miles per hour max, and with his wife on the back, Oliver Gee of the Earful Tower Podcast and the EarfulTower.com. Oliver, thanks for joining me, and a huge welcome, man. 
Well, thank you so much for having me, Charis. I am super excited. We're going to cover a lot of ground on today's show. Maybe not as much as you covered on your little red scooter, my friend, but we're going to talk about what it's like to live in Paris and how anyone can afford to travel and some of the best cheap travel tips in Paris. What you love, Oliver, and what you don't love maybe about France, how you made a viral video about learning French, because that was very funny, and I'll urge everyone to check that out. And of course, all the tales and mishaps and stories from this eight-week scooter trip around France and how you convinced your wife to do it. That's what I'm most interested in. Um, but first, let's, let's back it up a bit. Your love for travel, where did this come from? Uh, right, okay, so I started, uh, I would say it came from probably my dad who used to always tell stories about traveling around Africa and Europe. Uh, you know, like, I, uh, it's funny, you took me right back to my childhood from the beginning. I didn't expect that. <laughs> but I remember, like, watching TV and, you know, my dad would be like, oh, look, there's India. I've been there, boys, something like that. And you know, there's always sort of this curiosity in me, uh, whether I knew it or not. And then when I turned about 20 or 19, 20 myself, I lived in Western Australia, middle of nowhere, Perth, and I just wanted to get out and see it. And I basically took, basically since then, I've been on the move. Uh, I started in Africa, traveled around a lot of Europe, and then ended up living in Europe for pretty much the past 10 years. And the last four of them have been in Paris. So I guess, yeah, I guess it started with that and then continued with my own, uh, with my own curiosity. There you go. As you guys can hear, Oliver, you don't have a French accent. You've got an Aussie accent. And one of the neat things about that is a lot of people, when I ask them, like, hey, where do you love for travel come from? And I know my sp myself specifically, I didn't grow up traveling a lot. You know, I went down to Florida to visit my grandparents, but my family wasn't big travelers. You, as an Aussie, I think it's just different, right? Like, your dad had been to so many places. What do you think it is about growing up in Australia being Aussie or am I wrong in that it just seems like you guys get out a lot and there's it travels a bit more ingrained in the culture as a whole than maybe if you grow up in the states yeah well you're definitely not wrong because as you I mean you've traveled a lot you must have met a lot of Australians around the world yeah you guys I mean, never that, work I'm like whoa yeah. you're, everyone's always on holiday or vacation <laughs> it somewhere. seems like it I think they get pretty uh <laughs> Well, I think the thing is, it's pretty simple, really. Australia is so isolated uh, from, I mean, it's an island to start with, and it's in the middle, like I said before, especially Perth, which is, I think it's literally the most isolated city in the entire world. In other words, you have to fly for at least an hour or more to get to another city, like a proper city. And so because of that, a lot of Australians hear these stories about, uh, you know, the fact that in Europe you can take a one-hour train and be in a different language, different culture, different scenery, whatever, and you want to experience that. Whereas in Perth or most places in Australia, you could drive for nine hours in a car and nothing would change. You could drive for a week in a car, same accent, same sights, same kangaroos past your car, which is great, but eventually you want to get a bit more. And so it's very common for Australians, especially as a sort of gap year. I don't know if you call it a gap year in America, but, you know, they take a year off after. The few people uh, who do it call it a gap year, but that's one of the big, I think, cultural differences is between, right. Europe, between I think, U.S. teenagers and early 20s and Aussies and Europeans is the gap year is not prevalent. I, I mean, there are certainly people who do it, but it is not near as ubiquitous as people... I mean, every Aussie, not every Aussie, most Aussies do it. Most Europeans do it, whether it's between high school and college or college and a job. And in the U.S., I mean, if I had to give you a number, I'd say it's probably close to 1%. So, really? Yeah. Really? 
I wonder, I mean, maybe Americans are typically, as I understand, quite ambitious and, uh, and Australians can be ambitious too. But I think like it's, I think it's really important to stress for your listeners who, who maybe don't know any Australians is that often when they do it or when we do it, uh, we, it's not glamorous. Like my sister's doing the exact same thing now. Uh, she's traveling on a, on a budget of nothing. She's taking, she's couch surfing, taking in any favor, uh, you know, for food or, you know, like, you know, she's calling up old, old friends and family, you know, she's going to work as an au pair in London now. It's not, it's not glamorous, you know? So, uh, I think it's also a question of not wanting to do it. I mean, a lot of people, maybe in America, you know, and America, I took, I did a road trip across, uh, I did New York to LA in a car last year and that it's very different. There's a lot of different states and cities and feelings there. So maybe in America, it's easy to just travel around domestically. Yeah, and I, I think it is, and I think you're right. That's a point that I haven't heard anyone else make over the last 300 and or so episodes is this idea that maybe a lot of Americans don't want to take it because it is – I mean, I loved it. I loved backpacking. I loved when I was younger saving every penny I could, but there's a lot of people out there who say, like, this isn't what I want out of travel or – or they they think that's not what they want because they they maybe never done any of it and uh, you know I'll see even when we're in hostels European families with young kids being in hostels whereas uh, you know you don't see that if if American families as as a whole you know are out traveling it's you know they're staying in hotels or they're staying in their own Airbnbs things like that I don't think our culture has as much of this backpacker vibe even when you're older or as a family doing it that Europeans Aussies and other people I meet on the road do so. I wish I wish that Americans did it more because it would be a nice refreshing change for me personally to not have to meet Australians every time I go travel. <laughs> it would it would be refreshing for me not to have to meet Australians. Yeah. I love Australians, <laughs> but I am always jealous. I remember the first time I was in Australia, well, I guess the only time I was in Australia, I, I was out and this is a perfect microcosm of the cultures. I was living in Japan. And Heather and my wife and I took a three-week trip to Australia. So we did the whole one week in Melbourne, one week in Sydney, one week in Cairns, which was great. And we're out on the Great Barrier Reef, and there's a Japanese group with us, uh, people our age, and there's an Australian group with us, people our age. And the Japanese people were saying, oh, how long are you here? We're like, yeah, we're here for three weeks. And we live in Japan, and we're talking about that. And they're like, three weeks? Like, that's mind-boggling them that we're there for three weeks how are you here for three weeks i'm like how long are you guys here three days right so like that's that's a more uh japanese mentality at least culturally as a whole is like these shorter vacations hey go do everything really quickly you know i was there for three weeks i talked to the australians they're like oh yeah i don't know we i don't know we're here for three months at least you know blah 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 blah. so i think that's a perfect microcosm of the differences of the cultures is is what what is valued sometimes you, you know, two things uh, on that that I also thought of. First, you pronounce Melbourne really well and Cairns, so good for you on that. Uh, <laughs> the second, the second is uh, I just thought in America you don't get much holiday. Like an adult, a working adult gets like two weeks. Is that right? Not much. It's usually uh, you start with two weeks, right? Yep. Yeah. So you think about kids growing up getting used to their parents not traveling very much, so it's not ingrained in there. I mean, I I kind of remember exactly how much holiday you get in Australia, but I know in France you get like five weeks. So Europeans are used to this idea of, hey, let's go spend three weeks in the Alps or whatever, uh, whereas that'd be a very foreign concept. So I guess you don't grow up with travel the same way. And I'm just guessing here, but as, as Europeans and Australians do. 
Yeah, and I think that actually, now that we're, we're solving all the world's travel problems, here, <laughs> I think that then plays into the idea of why Aussies and Europeans are so much more comfortable traveling on a lower budget. Because if you have, if you're traveling for five weeks and you have X amount of money and, and then you're traveling for two weeks and you have the same amount of money, well, obviously you have to stretch your dollar further to, to spend more time on the road. And I think that's maybe why it's ingrained of like, hey, this is a budget trip. Whereas, they're certainly American budget travelers. I don't want to say they're not out there. It's just not culturally prevalent like it is in some of some of those other areas. You mentioned though, like France, obviously a very expensive place, and we're going to get into like some cheaper tips for Paris and France. But how did you end up in Paris? Like, what brought you then to be living in Paris? Right. So I was working. Uh, so before I became a podcaster, I was working as a journalist in Sweden, uh, and. So the news, I mean, nothing, especially back then, like a lot has changed in the past couple of years, which is a whole different story with migration and all this kind of stuff. But five years ago when I was doing it, there was no news really. And it was quite fun. It was like, uh, it's like the easiest kind of journalism there is. Like front page news would be the, when a, when a moose walks past a school very closely, you know, like people get really excited about that. And I did that job for a couple of years. I really enjoyed it. And then there was a job position open in the same company in Paris. And I spoke, uh, I, well, I told my bosses that I spoke pretty good French, uh, which I, I learned very quickly wasn't true whether it ever, ever was true because uh, I, I did study it like, like everybody else does. And I, I convinced them that I'd learn it real quick if they sent me down to work in the Paris office. So I moved down there and uh, on a fairly serious note, I got sent down there earlier for the first of several terror attacks that happened in Paris, the one at the Charlie Hebdo newspaper. That satirical magazine. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, but that was when. Uh, and what was that? You know, that was like four years ago, five yeah, years. It was. It's much, a while now. Much, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, almost exactly. It'll be four years at the end of this year, and so they sent me down the day after. So my introduction to Paris uh, was a really somber and different one to many other people's first uh, days living there. You know, like I wasn't out there smelling the croissants and you know walking down the beautiful streets. I was just working twenty four seven. Uh, but anyway, I stayed there. Like I said, that's a heavy story, but I stayed there working in that job for about two years. Then I started this podcast on the side. And then when I realized that there was a, a, a very hungry appetite for it, I ditched the job and uh, worked on the podcast. So that's that's my whole life story. There, there you go. You, well, was it? <laughs> there we go. All right, we're done. Um, was there? Was it a desire to live in Europe? Like originally when you moved to Sweden, coming from Australia, did you say, I want to live in Europe and I think I want to make this not my home forever or was it, all right, this is a fun thing to do. And then that led to another fun thing to do. Like, mm, or was it I think I was always then? really curious. Yeah. Yeah. I was always curious about Europe and my mother is from England. So I had a connection here, which, uh, for, for you and I don't know for you listeners or yourself, if you don't realize how it works for Australians living in Europe, Typically, if you meet an Australian living somewhere in Europe, they have a British parent, which is very common in Australia anyway. Uh, and having that European passport allows you to live in countries like France or Sweden, which is exactly the way that I did it. Um, I've since married a Swede, which means that it would be a lot easier for me to stay with the whole Brexit. But once again, that's a conversation I don't want to get into. But I was always intrigued by Europe, and I went and, went and lived in London for a year, and that really... Uh, wet my appetite for it you know like doing the little trips down to Barcelona and Prague and that kind of stuff and uh, just wanting to be able to do that whenever I wanted uh, and so when I moved to Sweden it 
uh, well, I never looked back. And so I've been here for, I think, what, eight, nine years now in Europe. I love it. it. It's pretty magical to be able to be in essentially any city or any transportation hub in Europe and look at a board. I know whenever I'm going through, I'm just like looking at the train boards or looking at the airport boards. And you just you just start seeing even places I've been now and I've traveled a lot, but it's still this wanderlust is so strong. You're like, oh, Barcelona, Brussels, Nice, you know, Athens. Like you're just reading all these names. You're like I could literally go to any of these places pretty easily and usually pretty cheaply from from almost anywhere in Europe. And it's like you growing up in the U.S. Obviously, you were in Australia. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural differences between different parts, but you're still the same country inherently, and so it's. It's cool. Whenever I'm there, I'm thinking an hour and I'm in a totally different country with totally different food and totally different language. That's it, it never wears thin on me. Like I always appreciate it. It sounds like you do too. Oh yeah, you're like a kid in a candy store here. There's just so there's just so many options and a lot of people uh, take up those options and people are all people are moving around all the time, you know? Like so it's uh it's it's easy to do the same. It really is. All right, question for you. Maybe the hardest question you have to answer the whole time. Do you like Paris? Do I like Paris? I absolutely love Paris. It, it's a, it's one of those cities that, um, well, you know yourself. You've been there. It's, it takes a hold on you. I, um, I, I'm just intrigued by it. And the, the beauty of it is that when I started doing this podcast uh, and moved away from the news, I got more interested in sort of the story of the city and storytelling rather than news telling is a whole different thing. And so I found myself walking around, especially with more time that I had to, you know, I'd walk down the street and look at, uh, I'd look at some kind of, a good example of something I became like unhealthily obsessed by is these, they're called uh, uh, corner guards or stone guards that mark the side of a, of a doorway. And they're these intricate, ornate, unusual things that can be made out of um, stone or, or iron or whatever. And I was always like, what are these things? I noticed them. I don't know what they are. I looked it up and they were to protect the, the doorways from the wheels on the wagons from the horses that used to go into these old buildings, right? So I looked into this and I, I took some pictures of them and I became like, like I said, obsessed by them. And, uh, and then I, you know, I talked to Parisians about it and I did an episode about it. And it turns out everyone had seen them before, but no one even knew what they were. And, and me, I was just sort of like, wow, that's just another story that's been under my nose for two years or another interesting thing. And I didn't even know about it, you know? And so I'm finding things like that always in Paris. And that's just, that's just one side. I'm not even talking about the food, the people, the history, and just the, the prettiness of it, you know? It's a, it's a magical city. The language, even the language of France. I love the whole thing. <laughs> even the language of France. I See, here's my thoughts with Paris, and obviously I know it not near it, not even one percent as well as you do, because uh, we've been there, I think two or three times at this point. But I, I always tell people it's complicated between me and Paris. I have this love hate relationship, and I I love it for I. So usually I love it at night, you know, strolling like going around on a bicycle, taking strolls. So pretty, it's so it is. It's gorgeous. It's it's magical for a reason. And then I usually hate it during the day because it's like busy, dirty, crowded, like most cities. You know, I'm not going to say Paris is any worse than Philadelphia or New York, but it's all these things. And then on top of it, my my biggest frustration is just the cost. It's like, well, I love Paris. Paris seems really cool. But for me to go out and, and have a lunch is going to cost me an arm and a leg. Or for me to find accommodations, it's, you know, it's one of the most expensive 
big cities in the world. So for you, you live there. Obviously, I'm sure as a local, it gets infinitely cheaper as you find stuff. What are some of the things that you've found or that you would tell someone who's coming there like, hey, you you say it's expensive, but let me show you the flip side of it. Yeah, I think the main thing is uh, you've struggled because you haven't known me yet, Travis. That's right. That's your so, biggest problem. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm getting on Google <laughs> Flights right now. I'll be over there tomorrow, all right? I'll gladly, I'll gladly, sh- gladly show you around Paris. And I'll show you that there's, it, you can do it really cheaply. And obviously, uh, starting up a podcast, I had to do things and still do on the cheap. Um, but it is, I mean, there's little little things. I've written about this before and I've, done, I've even done an episode on it. I had a, a, a young musician and uh, writer on who's always trying to save a song team. Um, and we sort of came up with tips. So I've got some in my head ready for you, actually. There's things like a lot of Parisians will, um, it might sound unglamorous, but they'll buy things like cheese and ham and bread from the supermarket and they'll go and eat it by the river or by the canal. And so that's already like a, like a quarter of what you pay in any like mid-priced restaurant. And that's quite, I mean, for me personally, I think that's more uh, sort of romantic and beautiful to be sitting doing that kind of stuff. And the, the locals are doing it too. You're not being like a bum uh, eating leftovers on the, on sitting on the ground. That's what everyone's doing. You know, you get a bottle of wine and, uh, you know, you'll always see people walking around asking, do you have a corkscrew? Do you have a corkscrew? Cause everyone's doing it. And, you know, a bottle of wine is like a couple of bucks compared to, you know, 10 times the amount in the restaurant. So there's things like that. There's things like knowing the right bars, which is a, a crucial, crucial thing. Um, where like, there's some bars where you go in, you can get a happy hour drink there's some bars where they bring you big potato wedge plates and they just plop them down on the table in front of everybody for free, you know? Like, and you have to know them. It's really hard to find that kind of stuff. Um, I've, got, I've got a link I'll send it to you and you can, you can yeah, tag we'll link it. Yeah, we that up in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. But, but there are things like that, tricks like that, uh, or just knowing that the city, as big as it looks, it's really easy to walk around. Like, you'd be mad to get an Uber. You'd be mad to, I mean, the metro is cheap, but you can often walk instead of take the metro. Just little things like that. But for accommodation, you're ruined. You yeah. need to book early or know somebody. It's not cheap. I know because um, I, when, I, when we got back to Paris, we didn't have an apartment. So we were faced with booking last minute hotels. And I was like, whoa, forget that. I called in some favors with friends instead. Yeah, accommodation is one of those things. Like, for example, I mean, any... Any advice I could give for Paris being cheap for accommodations would just be a general thing of like, use your hotel points, you know, or or stay longer term and try to get like a monthly deal on an Airbnb. But yes, you know, you're going to pay a lot um, in Paris. One of those tips that you gave is one of our Heather and I's favorite things to do. Like you mentioned, go to the grocery store, get the baguette, get the cheese, get the wine. We'd sit up on out. We were near Sacre Coeur the last time we were there. We we're staying there. And we, yeah. Every every lunch would be a, a picnic, and it, you're right. It would be as good, if not better, an experience than being at a restaurant because a it's cheaper, and b you're yeah you're in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Why do you, why not take advantage of it? I think the other thing is look see where the young people are hanging out because that's a pretty good clue. Um, like Sacre Coeur, the whole Montmartre area that you're talking about is so lovely, and it's definitely definitely worth a visit and a picnic. But I wouldn't do it every day because uh, there are a lot of tourists there and that obviously jacks up the prices everywhere. So you want to look for areas like there's a place called the Canal. Uh, in English, it's a Canal St. Martin. Uh, so the Canal Saint-Martin, which is down in like the sort of hipstery 10th arrondissement. 
which if you go there, everyone's young, students everywhere, you know that all the bars are going to be accessible if you're on a budget. Uh, whereas like, I mean, <laughs> I remember on one of my, I'd been in Paris for about a month and I was with my uh, wife who was then my girlfriend and it was Valentine's Day and we were doing everything on the absolute cheap. I mean, absolute cheap. We bought the cheapest bottle of alcohol. We bought uh, bread, whatever. We went to the Eiffel Tower and we, we drank out of the bottle. We didn't even buy cups, right? And then we're coming back uh, feeling a little sort of tipsy and we see a bar and we went in there for a little drink. And it was on this, uh, <laughs> it was in the first hour in this month, which should be sending warning bells off for anyone who knows Paris. Uh, it was on Rue Rivoli, which should be sending any even more warning bells off. And we go into this bar and, uh, and uh, it, it was really nice looking. And uh, we ended up getting drinks and the drinks, I think they were 30 euros each, which in uh, in American dollars, I don't know, but yeah, you don't want to be bucks, paying it. 40 bucks, 40 bucks, yeah. Yeah, each, right? And it was just a gin and tonic, a normal gin and tonic. And we were like, and we, like obviously, <laughs> I looked later, it was one of the most fancy hotels like in the whole world, which is just stupid that we went in there. But it was that kind of, uh, you know, that was a kind of stupid romantic decision thing. But uh, if you're traveling, you don't want to be doing that kind of stuff. As romantic as it is, if you're on a budget, stay under the Eiffel Tower, stay by the canal, uh, and, and be smart. It's yeah. Fun. Well, now she's your wife. So obviously there was $80 well spent. So there you go. Yeah, you right? can look at it that yeah. way. <laughs> she's also disappointed that we haven't been back to any similar bars for four years. <laughs> That's right. What are some of your favorite things like to do as a local that tourists might never know about? Do you have some or like or if you had friends or like, let's say when I come, what are some things that, of course, if I've never been, you're going to take me to the Eiffel Tower, Louvre. Like I, but let's say I've done that or, or I know I'm already going to do that anyway. What are some of these other things that you're like, oh, you got to go see this. You got to go here. Just mm. these, yeah, things that I locals think, would know and tourists wouldn't. Yeah, I think the key, the key trick to Paris, if you're coming to Paris, um, and I totally agree that you've got to do the things that are famous for a reason, like the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, Montmartre, just get it out of the way. Um and you know i think you should everyone should get their first trip to paris out the way and like suffer the queues suffer the price just get it out the way and do it and it's good and it's famous for a reason uh but what you really want to do either at the end of your first trip or on your second trip the second trip is kind of where it really begins but you gotta you gotta walk it's the key to everything in paris you gotta walk everywhere and uh, in doing that you'll discover all the secrets that aren't in the tour books because you'll be off the beaten track that's so heavily beaten by all the all the tourists. And you'll be walking, like Paris has exceptional uh, park game, right? Like the parks are incredible and they're everywhere. It's very green. And so even if you Google or you found a list of the five best parks, start from number six and you'll still be killing it, right? So uh, you need to do things like that. You need to wonder. There's a word in French um, called, so the word is flaneur. And that word, it's a noun. It's someone who likes to walk without an aim, you know? So they're not, they're not, they're not lost at all. They're just wandering. They, they don't sort of care where they go or where they end up. Uh, to flaneur, it's a verb as well, to flaneur. So uh, Parisians do that very well. And there's a reason it's a French word. Uh, you get out of your hotel, Airbnb, whatever, cafe, and you just go. You don't care. And so that's what you have to do. You have to stop with your checklist. You have to stop with your, um, you know, I don't know, top five things you need to see. And you just need to walk. And you will discover all kinds of things. Just like I told you that story about the, the corner guards, the chasse rue they're called. 
you, you go look and if you find something interesting you look it up or you ask someone or you you research it but you'll find you'll find such a rewarding experience doing that and then maybe popping into a little bistro for a coffee rather than following uh, the travel guides from the people that you know often these top 10 lists that you read they're based on another top 10 list off another top 10 list and eventually it just becomes so saturated it's not like true anymore yeah. so you want to ignore that stuff yeah, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like it was cool once and then it yeah. just gets so oversaturated that either it's, it's too expensive or maybe not as hip or not as cool anymore. If someone was like looking to walk, and I, and I know the city as a whole, but do you have favorite spots where you're like, all right, you're going to go flaneur. I'm probably yeah. butchering that. No, you, but, no, you but like, you know, just e- even if you just give us some ideas, someone's like, I want to spend a day or two, where would you tell them to go? Sure. Like, I'd, I'd point them straight to there's an area called the Marais. M-A-R-A-I-S, quite famous, uh, quite big too. It's the third and the fourth arrondissement. So an arrondissement is like a district. There's 20 of them and it's right in the center and it's really good. It's kind of, um, if you're a bit of a history nerd, the city started on two little islands in the middle uh, of the river Seine that flows through the city and then it moved sort of northwards into this area called the Marais, which is French for swamp, you know, like it was a marshy swamp area. And then that's where Paris really started. And so when you're walking through there, you'll, you'll see like the coolest old buildings, like hundreds, especially for American or Australian. Like you're like, whoa, that building is so old compared to anything I'm familiar with. You know, there's a Roman, uh, a lot of people don't know this, there's an old Colosseum, like a sort of very damaged, but like a 2000 year old Colosseum, uh, maybe 20 minute walk from where I'm talking about now. And you want to go, I discovered that by accident, you know, but um, you want to be in the Marais, start in the Marais because you can't go wrong. And there's the mix of the old stuff, like I just mentioned, and the new stuff, the coolest coffee shops, the coolest, you know, restaurants that everyone's talking about. You want to mix it up with that kind of stuff. Uh, once you've done that walk, go into a river walk. So go onto the other side, the left bank, that's famous for all Hemingway and all the, you know, uh, you know, people that were kicking around over the golden age of Paris 100 years ago. You want to go down there, big wide boulevards, very expensive, but nice to walk. And just walk and just walk and walk and walk. Basically, keep it fairly central because you don't want to finish your walk and be on the like in the outer suburbs. Uh, and and you know, like it, like I said, it doesn't have to be a line. You know, walk, go left, go right, double back on yourself. Sometimes you'll see things on the same street walking back the way you've come that you didn't say on the way because that's kind of the oh. And one last tip, and this is crucial too: if you see uh, an open door, so these doors that lead into people's big courtyards. 100% of the time, just walk in there, right? Because uh, firstly, if you get caught by someone, they're like, what are you doing? This is private. You go, oh, I took a wrong turn. I'm a stupid tourist, right? But if you don't get to- uh, caught, and you know, it's, I, think, I think most of them you're actually allowed to go in, but you know, I often just slip in behind the, um, you know, because they're, they're public courtyards, right? And you go in and you look and you just sometimes see the most beautiful things uh, that are not in any tour guide's book and you just feel like you're, you're breathing the same sort of Paris air that's that's been breathed by who knows how many people, interesting people over who knows how many centuries. That's fascinating. I, I would agree, like when I say the love-hate, the love part comes with the, the depth and the level of stuff that you can find in Paris because A, because it's so old, like you mentioned, B, because there's been so much happening in that city for so long. That you, yeah, like I've even had that experience where we we stayed at this Airbnb. We're there for a week, 
And the last day I'm walking down the same street I walked down and all of a sudden I see this, you know, these stairs that lead. I'm like, where's that going? I take it up and all of a sudden I'm on this little lookout and I walked by this, this thing probably 50 times, if not yeah. more. Yeah. And I just happened to see a sliver of it off in the corner. And you're right. There's just levels upon levels upon levels of stuff. Even if you don't know, like you said, you walk by those corner guards, you had no idea. I mean, it's cool if, if someone tells you about it, but even if you don't know, it's fun to just explore. And and yeah, Paris is incredible for that. If you were if you were telling people where to stay then, because you're talking about like walking and obviously they could go from wherever they're staying to, to the Marais and walk. But would there be like certain places that you'd say, hey, if you're going to stay in Paris, this is this would give you a little more off the beaten path feel while still allowing you to get out and see all the stuff that you want to yeah. see. Okay, so what I'd do is I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, you have to imagine that Paris is a circle, right? Essentially, it's a circle. And the, the district numbers go 1 to 20 in a sort of uh, clockwise spiral, right? So 1, 2, 3, 4, all central, like I just mentioned, further out until number 20 is up in the, in the northeast. So what I'd, uh, what, <laughs> what I'd tell often on my show is the 11th, the trendy 11th. So it's kind of central, but it's a little to the northeast. 10th and 11th arrondissements is where anyone on a budget who still wants to be central essentially has to stay. Like if you go to um, like the like the 7th or whatever where the Eiffel Tower is, forget it. Like just forget it because it's too expensive. And plus, uh, if you're on a budget, you know, just forget it, right? But in the 10th and the 11th, it's not so far out that you, you're not going to be able to walk. Uh, and it's uh, not so far in that it's too expensive. So it's sort of the middle ground. A lot of people like me, sort of young, um, working maybe lower paid jobs, but still sort of, you know, like like a musician or something would probably be living there. Uh, or more more likely uh, one step out, but you don't want to live one step further out because when you're in Paris, like I said, you want to be in there walking. You want to you uh, take the, the weight of the punch of the accommodation price and save money elsewhere because it is really nice. Like in any, I mean, any way you travel, it's always nice to stay closer to the center. But 10th or 11th, the canal, that that's exactly where the canal runs through, the, the St. Martin Canal. That's where you want to be. All right, dude. We, I am like, I pull up the map now. I'm looking at it. I, I'm planning this in my head as you're talking. So we will be heading back there. Now that I know all these tips and tricks, man, I think I can, uh, I'll be like a guinea pig for myself, right? Like, let uh, me see. No, no, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be spinning the wheel for you. I'll show you. I'll be glad to show you around, Travis. Yeah, I, I, I just, because it is one of these places that, you know, I went, like we said, we went to Paris, we've been there a few times, and it is it is an awesome place. And there's a reason it's, what, the number one, two, or three most touristed place in the world. It's, you know, who knows, they're always changing Bangkok and London and Paris and all this. But there's a reason. It's absolutely incredible for for the culture. And, and there's nowhere else in the world that's that's going to be like that. It's very, very unique. And so to be able to do it on somewhat of a budget is is pretty neat. Do you ever, because here is my thing also, do you ever bike around Paris? Because I love biking around the city and I did it twice. And I'm pretty adept at biking around cities and was still even a little, yeah. it's, it's a little crazy there. It's a little hairy. It's kind of, biking in Paris is kind of like uh, when you go to the, when you go to the beach when it's a bit colder, you just got to run and jump in the water and it's the same. So when you're cycling, you just got to sort of uh, melt into it and accept that it's lunacy. You know, it'd be like riding a scooter in, in Indonesia or something like that or India. 
So I, the first two years I was in Paris, I cycled like every single day. They had a really good bike sharing system that's since uh, become not a good bike system at all, but it was cheap and easy and I cycled everywhere. It was a great, great way to get around the city. And then, uh, then my girlfriend surprised me with the little red scooter for my 30th birthday and then I basically never cycled again because because riding a scooter around Paris is a real uh, experience and that changed everything and I kind of miss cycling sometimes uh, but but being on a scooter is a really cool way to see the city it opened up in ways like you know you can just get anywhere so quick because you can weave through the traffic it was a game changer but bike if you if you're a cyclist it's easy to do it and and relatively cheap to to hire one when you're there before we hop off the the Paris train here I wanted to just ask you if if there were things that you would, and we, we started touching on this when we started talking about walking, but specific things that you would recommend for people outside of anything they may hear of, like outside of the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower, you know, all that stuff. Are there places or, or like things that they should go see that you think, all right, if you don't see this, you're kind of missing out when you come to Paris, but you might not hear about it on that top 10 list? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you a story because I wrote one like the alternative top ten, where it was like instead perfect, of seeing, perfect. The, you know, like because everyone does these lists and it just drives me mad. Because I think people have such little imagination. You know, I can imagine the editor of some newspaper saying to their travel person, "Give me a top ten things to see in Paris." He's like, "Come on," you know. So I did this thing instead of this, see this. So instead of this tower, the Eiffel Tower, go and see that tower. Uh, and off the top of my head, I don't remember. Uh, uh, many of them, but there are things like, um, like one thing that I think should be in a museum because it's so interesting. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not a major history buff, but I just think this is so interesting. There's um, there used to so Paris used to be walled in, like uh, in 800 years ago, a total wall around the whole thing. And what what's fascinating, a lot of cities all around Europe were walled in, remained walled in, whatever. But what I think is really cool about the Paris Wall is that it was never really torn down. It was sort of swallowed up by the city. So they built houses on it. They built, used it as a wall of a new house. And, and over the next 800 years, it, it essentially disappeared, right? And so there are bits and pieces, if you know where to look, where you can find parts of the wall. And you can see kind of like when you're standing there, you're like, oh, wow, I'm on the edge of the city 800 years ago. And the bit that I'm leading to is where I play basketball, uh, like street basketball, there's this beautiful court with a beautiful uh, uh, sort of church cathedral behind it. And running alongside this court, and if you can find an image of it, you, you're going to love it. There's this old sort of limestone-looking wall, and it's the longest stretch of the wall that remains from the Philip August Wall from 800 years ago. And it's just there. And kids are kicking soccer balls against it. The basketball players are sitting against it. And I didn't even know what it was for the first two years I was playing there. And then I don't know how I found out. And I was like it gave me not just a whole new appreciation for the basketball court, but for the city again, because soon after that, and that's one thing you should go see, just even if you're remotely into history. Uh, and then what I did is I, I started that wall and followed the trail of it around the whole city, finding bits going, you know, it's like the Da Vinci Code on, on a zero <laughs> budget, basically. And I was like, so there should be, the wall should have been here. And then I look in a courtyard and there'd be like this vestige of the wall there often without even a sign or anything. And I was just like, whoa, this is so cool. So there's things like that. A lot of people that go to see the Arc de Triomphe or the, or the um, Eiffel Tower, yeah, do it on your first visit, but get creative on your second, third, fourth, fifth visit because there's so much going on. All right, well, you didn't know it, but one of my goals whenever we go to a new 
country or in every, not that I'm going to go to every country, but every country I go to, I always want to play basketball. And even if that means me on a court shooting a shot, like we're in Montenegro and there was this one girl there. I like asked her very nice if I could steal her basketball. I was like, yeah, just get a picture of me shooting one jumper here. I can't play with anyone. Like there's no one to play with. Um, so that is, that is my mission now, man. That sounds like one of the most epic basketball courts I could play a game on. No, so. hang on. Don't, let me, let me, if you're into basketball, you're going to love this. There are at least four epic courts in Paris. I think this should be a story that's in like i don't know whatever sports illustrator or whatever the amazing basketball courts i'll run you through them real quick so there's one that's right by the eiffel tower uh like 100 100 meters away or something so you can get a picture if you want to get a beautiful picture get a picture of you shooting that shot with the eiffel tower looming large behind you right that's incredible the one that i just mentioned is really beautiful it's the most interesting but it's not the best and then there's one in uh, near where you were in sacre coeur that's beautifully colored like really rich sort of purples if if you if you google pigal basketball like p-i-g-a-l-l-e um i think lebron james was just there like a month ago uh, and it's sort of the most photographed i think it's the most photographed basketball court in europe and it's and it's between two if you can see an aerial view of it is between two houses and really narrow and it's more beautiful than functional but people play there and then lastly get this the oldest surviving basketball court in the world is in Paris. I just read so, about this. It's at, is right. that the one at the YMCA? Yeah, is, essentially. Yeah. But you can't get in there except one day a year they have, uh, what do they call it, like some heritage day in Paris where they open everything. And I went and saw it uh, uh, maybe a year or two ago. And I went in and obviously there, there were courts that were built before it because basketball wasn't invented in, in Paris. But it's remained for like 100 years. And so it's really cool. If you're... Um, if you're Steph Curry, you can get in because he was in there the other day shooting hoops. But for the for mere mortals like you and me, uh, we have to wait for the right day of the year to get it. Well, I mean, you've got the Earful Tower podcast, so I can definitely get in with you. You're you're allowed at least three guests, I'm sure, every time you walk onto the court. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. We'll see how we go. We'll see how we can get there. I just read an article in the New York Times about it and them trying to, to save this court because it you know it's falling into ruin and, and they don't have the money to do it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is in Paris. Like I, I never would have known. Incredible. Yeah. Yep. Well, you hear a lot about Paris, obviously, and, and for a reason, and a lot of the reasons we just touched on and, and thousands more. But what about France as a whole? Like, obviously, France does get a lot of visitors still and a lot of tourists. And you hear, in my mind, I always hear Paris and the south of France. What, like, what should other people consider when coming to Paris? If they're there and they're like, all right, I don't just want to see Paris. I want to see France. And this is something that you just did. W what about it? Like, where else should they go? Should they consider France as a whole? Or have you found it lacking when compared to Paris? The answer is uh, absolutely you should get out of Paris and do day trips or weekend trips, uh, especially if you've been to Paris before. Like, use it as a base and go and check out some other stuff. If you would have asked me this question Three months ago, I wouldn't have been anywhere near uh, the right guy to talk to about it. But now that I've spent eight weeks checking out like the entire country, I can tell you there are. I think it's a, a, a almost a tragic mistake that people think south of France and Paris are the only things worth seeing here. I mean, for example, like if like on a really basic example, if you go up sort of northwest of where Paris is, there's a place called Normandy and Brittany, which are both like fantastically rich areas for food, drink, like so many food and drinks you've heard of. 
were born there. You know, things like Camembert, or Brie, cheeses, you know, drinks like Calvados, cider they make there, um, you know, all that kind of things like crepes and it's all up there. And uh, right in the middle of the two, there's a place, Mont Saint-Michel. I don't know if you've heard of it or your listeners heard of it, but it's like sort of Disneyland type uh, fairy tale village up on this mountaintop. Just beautiful, like, like achingly beautiful to look at it. And it's uh, overrun with tourists typically. There's three million people go there a year, but but for a reason again, you know, that like you want to see it. And and when we went there, we were in the middle of the day and it was crowded, but, but uh, you know, have you, if you've seen Harry Potter, there's a scene where they go. He goes through the wall into Diagon Alley, and it's all like magic and and cobble streets and people everywhere. It felt like that, and a lot of commenters on when I did a video there said that same thing. People pointed it out, but it's so it's magical, but it's busy. Uh, so things like that. And obviously, the trick is you go in the middle of the night or early in the morning. But things like that uh, should be on everybody's list to see before the before they die. And then take it a step further. Like people should go out to Bordeaux where the wine's made. People should travel through, uh, oh man, the south of France where there's a city called Carcassonne. And I don't know how popular that is outside of France and Europe, but that is the most interesting uh, town in the whole country by far. It's like, uh, if you'll let me, if you'll let me uh, r- rave about it for 30 seconds, I'll, I'll convince you why. Right? Rave away. So, <laughs> so this, this really, I reckon this city turned me into a history lover. So the idea is it's 2,500 years old. Uh, and over those 2,500 years, it got ripped down, it got uh, invaded, it was besieged, it was uh, left to ruin over and over again, like basically every couple hundred years, and then rebuilt every time. So eventually, uh, when we're, I think, about 100 or so years ago, they're looking at it and they're like, look, you know, the government, they're like, we're going to tear this down. It's a mess. No one knows what's going on. People are squatting there like it's, uh, it's basically a homeless shelter now. It's rubbish. Right, and so this dude, uh, I say this dude, he's a genius. If you ask me, his name was Violet Le Duc. He said, uh, "Hang on, I reckon I could fix this up. Let me let me take this project on." And he dedicated much of his of his life to to trying to get it back to what the original uh, jigsaw puzzle should look like. You know, so it's like he had fifty different puzzle pieces from fifty different puzzles, just looking at it, and then he kind of figured it all out. And so he rebuilt it, and they made it. So if you look at it now, people say that it looks like what Paris would have looked like 800 years ago with the same city wall I was talking about before, but it's just there. So when you go in, you're like, you just transported back, I don't know how many hundreds of years. And it was just like, for me, I was just absolutely, I went there four times in four days. How about that? I've never yeah, done that. That's I mean, that's impressive. That's when you like a place. I know that's yeah. how I know if I really like a restaurant. I'm like, I love exploring new places. I'm yeah. going back here because it's yeah. that good. It's crazy. It, I swear it turned me into a history. Like, I think when I talk like that, I assume anyone that's listening to me is like, oh, yeah, that, that guy's a bit of a geek, you know, like he loves his. I'm, I'm a pretty cool dude, Travis, so I'll tell you. <laughs> hey, you look cool to me. You sound cool to me. Now, I was a history major, but I always preface that by saying, I don't really actually love history. I don't dislike it. I just. I'm not the type of person who's going to a museum and reading all the plaques. I want to be out exploring and, and like have someone tell me the history like you're doing. Say, oh, yeah, here are here are the things on the side of doors. Here's why they exist. Hey, let's look at these five buildings and see them. I want to know that, but I'm not going to read like a 500-page book on yeah. on that, you know? So I'm with you. It's like... Yeah, yeah, cool. So we're both, we're both cool dudes. Yeah, right? that's what, what, that we're, okay. what we're getting to is that we're both cool and not nerds. Yeah, in, in our own minds. Um, so I, I think that 
two things there. One, I want to use the word achingly. Anytime I describe something as beautiful, I'm going to steal that from you. I'll give you credit for it. Um, and I think that the the cell of that of the town that you were talking about is this idea of hey, this is what it would have looked like 800 years ago because it was rebuilt the same way. I think, dude, you should probably talk to your tourism department. I think right there you have your marketing slogan. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. That, that's, that's if, and like the way I, it almost became a running joke on my, on my own show that I raved about. Like anytime that word comes up, I sort of, like my heart skips a beat, carcass on. Even the word is like magical carcass on, you know? So uh, I think people are sick of hearing about it on my channel, but I'm happy to talk about it on your channel. <laughs> Yeah. And this brings us to this idea. All right. We'll talk about this trip because you mentioned before this, you might not be the best person to talk to about France as a whole. You knew Paris. You've been living there for four years, kind of took on Paris and started exploring it. But now you took on France on a little red scooter. So, all right, just give us the, like, where did the idea come from? How long did it take you to convince your wife? Did you map it out? Like, just give us the whole the whole spiel here of why you took Paris or France on, on a little red scooter that went like 30 miles per hour max. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the, th- the first thing that's absolutely going to shock you is that it was actually my wife's idea okay. to do it. So she's uh, the cool one. I take that back. You might not be as cool. She's the cool well, one in the relationship. We're, right? trying to, we're trying to figure out how we came up with the idea, but I think, uh, I think like we had this scooter and we we're always interested to know how far it could go. And we'd never taken it outside of Paris. And we, we never really knew the top speed because there's no street long enough without a traffic light to get to the top speed in Paris. Uh, and we're talking about, I think, I think my wife, Lena, I think she said that we should, we should really stretch its legs and see where we could take it. And then sort of together, we're like, you know, honeymoon, that could be kind of fun. We could go around France. It's crazy. You know, we didn't even really believe we'd do it ourselves. And then, and then I think it was her again. She had the idea that we should do it because we mapped out the coolest places that you, you've everyone's in France at least has heard about, like Mont Saint-Michel that I said, or like Bordeaux, uh, you know, Marseille and that, the Alps, all that kind of stuff. And it made the most vague heart, like love heart shape, the most vague love heart shape you'd ever seen, you know? So starting from Paris, uh, which is sort of the point in the middle of the heart at the top, and then, and then heading up northwest and then around, down and up again. And then we're like, well, look, it's a gimmick, but we'll go for it. And that will be the season four of the Eiffel podcast. And the idea was that, you know, every Monday do an episode from wherever we were on the road saying about the cool stuff we learned. And it, uh, it, it you know, the idea of how, like how it would all work is we, we didn't really know. Like we, we, had, we knew we had to pack light. We knew we, we could only really book a night in advance because we never knew how far we'd get or whether we'd break down. Like it would be mental to, to – book every single night for the next seven nights which is madness um but what we the way we sort of did it is that we had uh, i'm fortunate i'm very fortunate that there's some uh very kind listeners to my show who have holiday homes around the country you know so people would get in contact like one guy did it he's like hey i love your show as as a wedding because it was a honeymoon too i don't know if i said that I, I don't know if we mentioned it. All right, so it was your honeymoon, yep. Yeah, yeah. So that was the other thing. It was like romantic, you know, love heart shape. And this guy messaged uh, Jim from Australia. He's like, look, we've not met, but I love your show. And as a wedding gift, you can use my place in the countryside for as long as you want. So 
uh, and I read that out on episode, and then more offers like that came along. You know, so we sort of started. So there's one way to keep it cheap. I was gonna say, and that's a that's a good idea. You just shout out someone who did something, and then like, oh, maybe it'll come. Maybe more will come rolling in. There you well, go. Yeah, I mean, like, like <laughs> it it was just. I think the idea of the wedding and the idea of like people. It was pretty clear that we were doing it on a on a crazy budget, you know, and people wanted to help out. Like it, it taught me that there's a lot of kindness in people. Uh, and it's probably something you've come across yourself that, that listen to your show and want to be part of it in more than just a passive kind of listening way. So then what we do is we'd take these places that we sort of had a base and be like, yeah, we'll stay there for a couple of nights, crash there. Um, but in the meantime, let's aim that. So it's about 10 days away. And so we'd roughly try and go, I guess it was about, uh, maybe, well, it's 60 kilometers, which is, I don't know what that is, 45, yeah, maybe. Yeah, 45 miles, miles, 40 miles, yeah. Yeah, so we'd aim to do that every day. And a big day would be, you know, three or four times that. And a typical day would be about that. And uh, we just chug along and you couldn't, we knew from the start, we couldn't take the big roads. It was illegal because the, the scooter's too slow. And, uh, and you know, you'd go on Google Maps and we'd plan it out. And then we'd be like, hang on, uh, it just suggests all the motorways. So you had to turn it don't show any motorways and then it would still give the fastest way which are often two big roads so we're experimenting for ages at the start with if you put the gps to bicycle setting uh which was great but then it would sometimes take you to like a park right on a bike a trail bike. yeah 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 so we couldn't do that so eventually like often you'd turn back and it'd be even longer than suffering on a highway so it was when, a little when bit, is google maps coming out with the scooter right I like know, they need another icon put the scooter on there yeah, they, you're exactly they're exactly right, and uh, it was tough uh, with that in mind. But we sort of figured it out, and we just aimed roughly in the right direction. Often, and we we just sort of we'd often book the place on Airbnb uh, on the same day. In fact, we almost always did, and then we'd base how far we'd go on uh, on where we were, right? And then as we traveled, it sort of became less of a heart shape because that's quite hard to do. It turns out. And the trip was a lot longer than we thought because uh, 30 miles an hour is very slow, it turns out. And so we ended up like, we sort of did the first half of the heart really well. And then um, on the way back, we got to the Alps, crossed the Alps, and then that was it. Like, we're like, no, this is, this is way, we're done after two months. So instead of doing the top right-hand side of the heart, we headed back to Paris. And it, I guess you could say it looks more like an anatomical heart now. Or, as one listener said, it's kind of like a metro map. Like, it's more of a sort of guideline, like the idea of a heart. You know, we sort of went around the country. Right. But if you look at it, it doesn't really look like that. How long were you originally going to go? Like, what was the original plan? Well, we were, we were lucky and unlucky in that our apartment in Paris, they, uh, someone bought it. And so, we were essentially were kicked out of our own place. And then we're like, all right, we'll celebrate it. And we just won't, um, we won't give ourselves a set time to come back. And because I'm kind of working on the road with the podcast and Lena's a, a shoe designer, so she can work as long as she got a piece of paper and a pen, uh, we're like, yeah, we'll take our time and we'll, um, we'll just sort of see how it goes and take it as it comes. So we figured six weeks maybe. And then by the time six weeks came around, we were in, I think, Carcassonne at the bottom of the country. And we're like, whoa, this is going to take. And plus winter was coming. Uh, and and on the scooter you don't want to be you just don't want to be out when it's cold or rainy and we were so lucky that we had like five minutes of rain and uh you're just extremely fortunate in that respect so then what were some of the highlights of the trip you mentioned carcassonne as one of them what were some of the other things that really stick out to you is this was just blew your expectations away or you had never heard of it and all of a sudden you're like yeah people got to go here 
Yeah, I got it in one word for you, Travis. Annecy. Annecy. So I, I'd heard of this place, this kind of mythical Narnia-like place before. And I knew that it was meant to be really beautiful. Uh, and I knew it was, I'd seen a picture of it maybe. And, you know, you hear, you hear stories. You hear, you hear the stories around. Uh, but I'd never been there and I didn't know what to expect. And so we got, it's in the Alps. It's nestled between a bunch of mountains. And we got in there. Uh, very hesitant knowing we'd have to literally cross those Alps to get out of there. But when we got in there, it was just so, this just such a beautiful place. And unlike, and this, at this point we'd been on the road about seven weeks, right? But it was game changingly beautiful. So we checked into a, a hotel, really central, uh, cheap, lucky. Um, and uh, we're like, we'll be here for one night. And so we went walking and I, and this is like exactly how it happened. Five minutes into the walk, I was so sort of speechless by how pretty it was that I called the hotel back rather than finish the walk. And I was like, can you book us in for another, you know, same room, same price, same night, do it now, I'm in. Which like we we basically stay one night everywhere else. But it was just so like you wanted to be part of it. You wanted to be there. And the reason why, I guess I didn't really paint a very nice, you know, I didn't paint the picture yet, but it's, it's they call it the Venice of, uh, of the Alps. It's canals everywhere. It's really like the backdrop of these mountains and the Lake Annecy, which is just the water is see-through. Like it's it's like a dream, you know. And uh, it had that kind of it's kind of what you'd imagine Switzerland is like if you if you if if you can picture Switzerland, um, you know. But it's kind of cottagey feeling. Everyone's you know the food is like fondue, like melted cheese and stuff. You know, you see cows around the place, but the, the 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 town itself, I just knew straight away. I thought this is the most beautiful town in the country, and I'm convinced. So I've I've been recommending it. I'm uh, that's what you know. That's where you should go, and that's where you should go with Heather next time you're you're traveling around. I don't know if you've been there. But I you I, should am, go there. I have never been there, but I'm looking at a map, and it's dead south of Geneva. So I I actually may have driven through it at some point because I did come all the way up from Italy back right. to Lausanne in Switzerland and, and went through the Italian Alps uh, right, or, and, right. and the French Alps, like that area, but not sure if I passed through Annecy. But all right, so I got Annecy, Carcassonne, and of course, you're going to hook it up in Paris. So I mean, at that point, I mean, we're starting to fill out a whole trip here at this you're point. St- <laughs> it's starting to look like a love heart shape almost. That's you... right. That's right. What, all right. So this idea of the scooter, because I love it. I love that you just said, hey, we're going to take the scooter out. What were like, what were some of the best parts of having the scooter? And then what were some of the drawbacks, maybe even other than the obvious, you know, if someone like, would you recommend someone take a scooter around France? I guess no, is what I'm asking. Not. Definitely okay. not. I think it's, it's hard work. Uh, but I'll get to the uh, negative side, but the positive side is incredible because, and this is the major positive side that, uh, and it's cool. Good question. Cause even though I did a whole season on this, I never talked about this. I never even thought about, it. but what's really good about having a scooter is when you arrive in a town or a city or a village or anything, you can drive right up uh, where you want to go and park there, which is amazing. If you're in a car, that's that's a game changer, right? That is but- amazing because a lot of times when I'm traveling, one of my biggest worries, and, and then I find myself like Googling it before I get there, which is lame, like a lame travel thing. But my biggest worry is when I have a rental car is like, am I going to get stuck in this tiny little spot? Is there going to be parking? If you've never been to a city or, or town, you have no idea what the situation is like. Right, right, right. Whereas with the scooter, what we often did, especially in villages, it was nice, is we'd drive in and we'd be like, all right, let's get the lay of the land. And you can get the lay of the land in two minutes. You know, you zoom around, 
not not zooming around. I don't want to sound like a lunatic here. We just like went around with that. Like, okay, there's the church. There's the bakery. Uh, there's there's the hotel or whatever. Um, and this is the okay. Yeah, we got the idea. Let's park. And and especially that was good because we stopped. We I went through. I must have gone through hundreds upon hundreds of villages. And often you just stay there for half an hour or an hour. And so that idea of you know, if you're in your car, you'd spend that time looking for a car park, then walking, whatever. Forget it. Like we were just, we we got a really good lay of the land for the whole country. But the the downside is, uh, wow, there's a lot of downsides to it. One is that you're uh, exposed to the elements, which is tough. I mean, we were lucky with no rain, but the others, like <laughs> one time we're driving along and Lena was, she was just wearing shorts and like a wasp landed between her hand and her like uh, leg the skin on her leg and it stung her and she had an allergic reaction and so that would obviously never happen in a in a car you know but also it's tough on your body like it's there's a lot of vibrations it's long days sitting still you've got to be hyper aware of everything like in a car you can glance off at the the falcon that's you know flying alongside but on a scooter you got to look because if there's a large rock or if there's a tree root that's coming under the side of the road you're in trouble you know and or like a pothole there are a lot of potholes and they <laughs> you've seen pictures of the scooter that's a ridiculous little scooter and if the wheel goes in a pothole uh, you're in trouble so uh it's it's tough in that sense and it's kind of funny when the trip started i had uh on like literally day two day three i was so sore and tired like so sore and i was lying down every like every time i got off and i was like this is really tough if this is what it's like for the whole trip i shouldn't do it but then uh it turned out i had lyme disease i don't know if you if you heard of lyme disease before yeah i've heard of lyme yeah. disease no yeah, wonder okay. you were tired yeah i know right well it's funny because in some countries they don't believe lyme disease exists like in australia it's not i don't know i don't know the full story anyway it hit this tick that bit me wanted to kill me apparently and uh i was out and uh you know so that <laughs> like when you when you have to do the majority of the driving and you're sick like that it, it wasn't very nice but um but hey, I soldiered on and it was fine. And it was uh, it was interesting to meet with rural French doctors. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> I was going to say, like, so, so riding around on a scooter is hard, but it's like three times as hard when you have Lyme disease, basically. You are, at least, gonna... <laughs> at least. And then I had an allergic reaction to the medication they put me on. And then, oh my God, it was terrible. But you, it was guys kind of, were, you guys uh, were in some rough shape there for those eight we weeks. Did. No, we were. We, and I think... Like on from a storyteller point of view, it's good because you want, you know, as it is with often traveling, you like to, people love to come in and say, oh, the flight was delayed. You know, what is that really what you're going to tell me about? But that's how it is, right? Um, so it made it for an interesting, you know, it made for a lot of interesting chapters if this were to ever be a book. Like we, we definitely struggled. It was no walk in the park, but the, but the soaring highs made up for the, the, the crippling lows. Quite what easy. about what about the people who you met along the way that you told, "Hey, we're driving this little red scooter around around France." Like, there that must have been interesting to them. That cannot happen to them very often, if at all, ever. You're right. People loved it, and people. I mean, we had we had uh, just like a few examples. I remember like one guy stood up and just started clapping. I remember uh, at one point, like a bunch of firefighters just all started waving and like cheering when we went past. Like, there's this feeling, and I was thinking a lot about it because I had a lot of time to think, basically. But you know, like um, when you see a cyclist go by, what they're doing is much tougher than what we were doing, especially in the mountains. But 
Uh, there are a lot of people doing it. It's not that unique, but you don't see a single red scooter out in the countryside. And so it was pretty exotic. And uh, and Lena had drawn on the top box, like the case on the back of the scooter. She had sort of drawn with white paint, like a face like with big sharp teeth on the back. So often people would beat their horns and wave when they went past. And every time we parked it and kids saw it, they'd be like, oh, look at that. Obviously, they said it in little French accents or French words. But, you know, they, they were really enthralled by seeing this. So it was kind of nice to be able to um, – share that happiness that we had with other people just from a cursory glance uh, looking at it you know it's pretty yeah, cool you made pe- you made people say like someone's that was someone's story for the day right and i always yeah. try to look at it as when i'm traveling like what's my story for the day or how can i help someone else have a story even if i'm just walking down the street of my hometown and you know you chat someone up and they they leave with a better feeling like that's someone's story for the day when they go back to the dinner table like did you know i met this couple they're driving around this yeah. red scooter you know yeah, well, I often wondered like what people um, thought about or were saying to each other as they drove past us, often like four times as fast as we were. Like I always wondered. The other thing that's funny is uh, like I often felt really guilty because we were obviously the slowest on the road. And I often felt guilty if someone got stuck behind me because there was too much traffic. And then I had to – I often said it out loud to Lena on the back. I was like, you know, I'm not going to feel bad because why would I feel bad that they have to go at 30 miles an hour for a minute and a half? when we're doing it for eight weeks, you know, like if we can do it, like they can put up with it, you know, but you often have that feeling when you're slowing someone down that you feel guilty. But hey, I tried to get over it pretty quick. Yeah. What did you guys bring on the trip? Because obviously you said you couldn't, you had to pack pretty light. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> I did one of those time-lapse videos of us packing everything that we had and put it on um, Instagram, but it's, we packed extremely light, right? So the top box on the back was enough for maybe three changes of clothes. And then, and those top boxes are incredible. You fit a lot in them. Um, and then we had our, we both had a laptop in there as well. And then I had a little bit of equipment for recording the podcast, but not really very much. And then Lena had a bag on her back, like a backpack, but that sat on the top case. So she didn't like have any of the weight of it really. And, and in that were like some extra shoes and stuff like that. And then on the front, I, I had, you know, little things like, coffee thermos or wires or anything that i didn't really care if it got stolen so that when we parked in a in a village for lunch and wanted to go for a walk i often left that stuff attached so that if someone took it it wouldn't have been the end of the world you know so we packed like we packed really lightly like beyond what many people would do uh and then uh yeah lena who like i said she's a shoe designer so she's in the fashion industry she struggled with only having so few changes of clothes and shoes not to mention but she was uh, exceptional yeah that's awesome did the do you have a name for the scooter we have many names for the uh, scooter. okay yeah depending on how, well, how how well they're doing how well it's my, doing my favorite is the alp slayer okay uh, crossing the alps we haven't talked about that but it was it got down to 6 miles an hour going up some of the mountains which is uh, like that's just insane. But yeah, we like did there it, are you know? humans who are running faster than that. Oh yeah, for sure. And but just the feeling of getting to the other side of it was so like we slayed the Alps. So that's good. A lot of people call it the Red Beast, or in French, uh, La Bête Rouge, La, La Bête Rouge in in American French, <laughs> La Bête Rouge. And uh, and the listeners came up with a lot of names for it too. So they called it like you know. The little scooter that could, or like little red, things like that. So, so it's got a, it's got a few. So little red ma- made it though. I mean, did you have any major mishaps with little red? Yeah. Or yeah, we did. We had one fairly major mishap 
we were, we're heading inland from a, a beautiful recommendation here as well. There's a beautiful island called Ile de Rey, R-E, Ile de Rey. And we headed in. We're doing a massive day. And um, the, the way, from my perspective, what happened is we're in, and I mean the middle of nowhere, right? Because we couldn't take the main roads. We were on like a, not a B road. Or, we're like on a D, E road at the moment. And uh, no one around. And then I heard a helicopter really close. I was like, whoa, that is like there's a helicopter really, you know, like, so I was like looking around to try and I couldn't see it. I'm slowing down. And I realized that that was the sound of the scooter. The scooter was making some noise that sounded as loud as a close helicopter. So I pulled over and, uh, you know, the, the front brake pad, all the screws on it had come loose, like loose, loose. And, uh, like you couldn't, they were all hitting. Oh, it was terrible. So he pulled it over. I didn't have the right tool to fix it. And uh, I just, I laid down on my back and I had like a pair of scissors or something and I was trying to fix it and I fixed it a little bit, scooted again and it happened again and we're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Because like there was not, there was just nowhere, like cornfields kind of. And then out of, um, out of nowhere, these guys came up to us and I thought they were trying to get past. I was like, oh, sorry, I'll move. And they're like, ah, we see you had a little, uh, we see you had a little, they said it in French, but they had, the word is like a little worry. You had a little worry going on here. I was like, oh Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're farmers up around the corner. We can, we can probably help you out. So they took us up and they fixed the bike. And then one of them goes, so nice. One of them goes, um, I've got a little gift for you. And he like disappeared and he came back and he held out his hand and he, he dropped something into my hand. And I looked and it was the exact right like Allen key to fix the scooter. And he goes, I had a spare. You never know when you're going to need it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is too good. So, uh, <laughs> so it was a wonderful like, little travel story. But the, the moral of the story is if you're going to ride a scooter for, for eight weeks is you should pack the right tools to fix it because it will break down. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that that was the only – is that the only time you guys broke down or like a major issue? At, uh, at one point, the brake basically stopped working. Okay. Uh, that could be an issue. It, yeah. <laughs> but it was a really easy fix. And I took it into a guy and he showed me how to fix it. It was so easy to fix that he didn't charge me to fix it either. He was like, yeah, you just got to do this. And, uh, you know, it, it still worked, but it was, you know, like worryingly unresponsive. Um, but no, nah, I mean, the scooter, like when I took it into the mechanic before we went on the thing, I was like, can you give it a total service and tell, oh, I'm going to do this trip. And I, I said, do you think it'll make it? And he's like, why wouldn't it make it? Like, there's no reason. So they're pretty confident with the with the stuff they they they're servicing and they're, i mean it totally made it i mean you're going like 30 miles an hour is so slow that you know but you know we did 2500 miles overall so we really we really put it through the yeah, put it through the wild. test that's yeah. if you guys are listening and you're like how far is that that's essentially you'd be going across the u.s it's well yeah, yeah. you know what i did i did for the first time i haven't told him on this yet but uh, we put i tried to figure out how far 2,500 miles is from Paris if we were to head straight rather than in a circle. Nice. Right? This is cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's some of the places. No, we're not cool. We're nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, so imagine you're in Paris, you're heading, obviously, okay. So if you, if you head to, uh, I'll do it in kilometers because that's what I measured. So we did 4,000 kilometers. So I was like, how about Paris to Moscow? That's just 3,000 kilometers, right? So that's crossing like entire Europe. So I was like, okay, we got to if we're going to go further, no one knows anything that's a thousand kilometers further in in Russia. So let's go south. So it's it's going as far as Aleppo in Syria, for one, right? It's going. Uh, I was like, what about like if you go into northern Africa? It's got Casablanca easily 
you almost get to Timbuktu, right? So uh, it's like just it's it's always going from Paris to Stockholm and then back again. It's just insane. It's insane when you say it like that, or like you said, like crossing yeah. the crossing America or Australia. Or yeah, something. Or crossing just, Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely insane. Speed. Little yeah. Red, Little Red, or or the the little scooter that could whatever name <laughs> right. the Alp Slayer. Uh, yeah. So so this scooter is still in your possession. Do you still use it? You're, it's yeah. All, all right. Well, we got it back. We got it back to Paris, and then we did several laps of the um, the Arc de Triomphe because obviously it should be celebrated accordingly, and that was the best I could come up with. And then uh, and then I parked it hidden away in a basement somewhere, and came to Sweden uh, to recuperate from the trip. Because, like, I, I mean, I guess you would, uh, anyone that travels a lot would know that when you're constantly staying in different hotel rooms or whatever, not to mention traveling on a, on a little scooter like that, you get really tired, you know, and you got to, like, it would have been mad if I had to go back to a nine to five job the next day after I came back. So I was quite happy to, um, to come to Sweden and uh, chill at the in-laws place for a little bit yeah. before getting back into it. People always say you need a vacation from your vacation, right? But right, when you're right. doing the type of traveling that you were doing, like the honeymoon, I, I would not consider that a vacation. Like it, it, it's it's fun, but it's a trip. It's a trek. It's an adventure. And uh, yeah, to, to hop back right off that and have to go, yeah, and do a nine to five would be really difficult. It's nice that you're like, yeah, we're just going to chill out now. Like we're not going anywhere. I'm not moving <laughs> off this bed for like three <laughs> days. <laughs> well, one of the lucky one of the lucky things about being a podcaster is that you can podcast. As I found out on the road, I can also. I mean, we've got like moment, like just huge amounts of stories and videos and podcast stories to tell. So that you know, like uh, it's easy to continue the honeymoon season of the podcast, even though I'm not on the road anymore. Because there's just so much that happened, or so many different angles to tell a story. Like you know, like you know, like the questions you're asking me could all be podcast episodes, things to see outside of Paris, or you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of stories left to tell. So I'm happy to do that from Sweden until I get back to Paris and get on with the typical podcast episodes I do. Yeah, I just gave you like 15 new episodes. That's always my hardest part is is coming up with content. Like you know, it's there, but actually, mm. like putting it into episodes and then you know you talk to someone all of a sudden they like oh yeah this this and you're like wait a second these are all episodes. you know writing them down really quick sure um, but you've done what you've done 300 350 episodes oh, i'm not yeah, surprised man, at this point yeah it's 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 getting up there it's getting up there um yeah what about i, I will do a quick hitter here because we talked a lot well we talked all about france and paris what about some of your other favorite destinations to travel that is outside like outside of france right um I have a lot of time for uh, Eastern Africa, where I've been a couple of times. I really liked, um, I've been to Tanzania and Kenya a lot. I mean, a lot. In the two times I visited, I traveled a fair amount around there. Um, and I'd go back there again in a heartbeat. I think that's really interesting um, and totally different. Like, it's totally different from Australia, Europe, America, anything like that. Um, in, in, I thought America was fantastic. I mean, when we did, we did a, we traveled. So we went, when I did this trip, we went New York down to like uh, New Orleans and then over to LA. So that's sort of weird, like not just a Route 66, like a lot of people do. And we, and I, I thought it, I think you have a brilliant country. And I think a lot of, uh, I mean, there's just so much to see there and so different, all the different, um, sort of the diverse landscapes and the diverse people. And for me, I tell you what, one of the most interesting thing, I know you said quick hitter, but you just reminded me of 
the different accents in America. I love accents. Uh, like I love language and accents. And when I was traveling around, I wish that I'd made a video the whole or a podcast the whole way along of all the different accents I came across because I just thought it was so. It's like so. Some of them are so charming or just ridiculous. They sound like a parody in a good way. Or uh, I just didn't know that there were so many accents to one country. Yeah, uh, are, you know, you bring up a good point because when I think, I, I'm sure Aussies have accents. Well, I mean, you have Aussies have accents, but I mean local accents yeah, as well. Yeah. But it's certainly not something that I, without a trained ear, have ever really picked up on. Like I'll know, hey, that's an Aussie when you start speaking, but I want to, oh, he's from Perth or he's from Sydney or this or that. So I, I feel like it's maybe less distinct. In sure. Australia? I think I think there's only I personally people disagree on this, but I think there's only like two accents in Australia. There's one that's quite soft, sort of a bit. Mine's very soft because I lived in foreign countries and so speak naturally slower, so that I'm understood if I speak English. Um, but so imagine like a typical Australian. I'll do it for you if you want. A typical Australian accent is a little bit more like this. You know, they sort of a bit twangy and they sort of uh, speak a bit slow and use a lot of slang. And then the other one is the one that's like a wildly ununderstandable, incomprehensible sort of Brisbane, uh, north of Brisbane, so Queensland, where they talk, where they're at, like, you know, g'day, mate, here, go on. Oh, I'm going to go out and, uh, you know, meet some tourists out in the Great Barrier Reef, that kind of stuff. And I don't, I always, I think that's a bit of a, uh, a bit excessive, to be honest, you know. And, and it's kind of like people like that that always end up on the news going viral because, you know, they say something stupid when their dog escapes or whatever. And then everyone thinks Australians talk like that, which is absolutely not the case. Um, but I don't think uh, – some people think there's more, but really there's only a couple. Whereas in America or in England, there are just frighteningly many accents. Yeah, there it's are. Fast- accents are fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I love it. And I love hearing the hearing the differences. So, yeah, U.S. cool, Eastern Africa. Uh, you've been to a lot. Any other, few, any other places that you're like, yeah, this is top of my um, list or – or, I think. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say New Zealand. Okay. I have to go to New Zealand. Have you been to New Zealand? No. And as Saving anyone, it up. yeah, as anyone who listens to the show knows, it's been like number one on the list for yep. quite a, quite a few years at this point. It's a it's a must visit. And uh, I my parents lived in Auckland for like ten years. And I used to go over there every now and again to to visit them. And every time I went, I'd try and see more of the country. And it really it's uh, the hype. Believe the hype with New Zealand. Another cool place. My parents live in Fiji now, uh, and I went there fairly recently. But I mean, I'm not going to recommend it unless your parents live there, uh, because it's 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 a long way to go for a holiday. But it's a really cool place that that's uh, interesting and worth a visit. There are certainly no shortage of places to go. And yeah, New Zealand, you're just adding fuel to the fire of us being like, all right, we got we got to go there. I'll, I'll bring it back because this makes me think of one last kind of question that i have for france and for paris if you're giving people the best time to visit there because this is i think important you talked a lot about this you know obviously especially in like a huge tourist destination like paris do you have a favorite time of year like if someone said i could go to paris anytime i want the best combination of convenience cost you know good weather stuff going on yeah i'd say um I'd, there's there's a twofold answer. One is uh, August is really interesting time to go because the whole of Paris goes on holiday, and I mean like everybody goes on holiday. So it's like it's like dead. The weather's good, but it's dead. So as a tourist, that can be really beneficial because 
like what you said when you're in Paris, there are so many people that it sort of put you off. You wouldn't have that problem. And so if 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 you're a traveler and you think uh, crowds put you off a little bit or big cities, that's a really good time. The downside, of course, is that uh, things will be closed. You know, your local bakery will likely be closed, or even maybe a museum you wanted to go to. So it's it's a. I love August in Paris because I love having the streets to myself. Uh, other than that, I think. I think sort of late spring when when everybody's coming out after the after the winter chill and everything looks beautiful. I mean, let's be honest. I think you can't really get. There's not really a bad time to go. No, because then you're like, oh, Christmas and winter in yeah. Paris has its own yeah. beauty to it, right? And then, yeah. of course, June, July, August going to be great weather. Fall's going to be pretty because the yeah. yeah, all right. So I guess it depends. If you're like an Instagrammer, you probably want autumn. If you're if you're uh, you know, I don't like the cold so much. Uh, so I prefer some. I love the hot summer because it's kind of what I'm used to from back home. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's, you can never really go wrong. I think it'd be unlucky. Like last winter, there was snow in Paris, which is pretty rare, but there was a lot of it. And people were skiing down the very slopes of the Sacre Coeur that you said that you visited with your wife. Or wife or girlfriend? Wife, wife, yeah, wife. Heather. Yeah. I know her name, but not her relation to. Yeah, we uh, must be cool because we both have wives, right? I mean, hey, yeah, someone right? thought I we mean, were cool enough. <laughs> this episode title is going to be two cool dudes who have <laughs> wives and think history's ace, right? <laughs> there you go. You just did my job for me. <laughs> um, last question I ask, and we, we talked about a mishap already with, with breaking down. Do you have any other big travel mishap that's happened to you? that just sticks in your mind is like, oh man, this is a story that I'll be telling my kids and grandkids. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I knew you'd ask the mishap question and I had that one about the breakdown saved up, but I got another one that popped in my head that's even better. Um, when I when I first, it's funny, like it's Paris related by chance. The first time I ever came to Paris, I was uh, 20, 21 years old, something like that. And I came, I was in England and I came down to Paris. So this is 10 plus years ago and I was looking after my little brother who was 12 and a young 12 at that. And uh, the, I'll take you on a journey with this story because it's worth it, Travis, believe me. So we came down to, to Paris and my family had all left England for the weekend and gone to various corners uh, of, the, of the globe, which was uh, irritating because I needed my parents, as you'll see as the story progresses here. And we, uh, we come down, we, had, we just there for one night. We hadn't booked any accommodation, which... Uh, anyone will tell you it's a stupid idea for Paris, but I just come from from Kenya and I was totally like chilled out and I was like, yeah, everything will work out. Yeah, we don't have any money, but we'll find something. So we're walking down the Champs Elysees, the big avenue, the famous avenue, and I said to my little brother, I was like, well, yeah, it's probably about time we start looking for some accommodation. You know, the sun's starting to set; it can't be that hard. Let's figure it out. And there's a tourist booth on the side, and I went up to the tourist booth. And I was like, hey, you looking for a hotel? And uh, you know, she goes how old's the boy? And I was like, oh, he's 12. He's a young 12. And she goes, well, it's illegal in France uh, for you to stay in a hotel with someone if you're not their parent. doesn't matter that you're his brother. Like, you're breaking the law unless you have a letter of consent from your parents. Uh, and I was like, they're in Marrakesh. I don't know how I'm going to – this is like 10 years ago. You couldn't just email them or scan, whatever. So she's like, uh, well, I don't know what to do to help you. And I was like, well – you know, you're here to help me, aren't you? <laughs> and she's like, well, all I can say is you, you, you're going to have to sleep on a park bench tonight. Uh, so, and the story gets happier, but that's my mishap, is not planning the first time I went to Paris. So let that be a lesson for, for all your listeners, uh, which we already touched on, like book ahead for your accommodation. 
But then so we went to the park and we're sitting there and I was like, I'm going to get in so much trouble from everybody if I make my 12-year-old brother sleep on a park bench in Paris. Like, what am I going to do? And I was just sitting there like fretting. And it's weird like because I wasn't used to being in charge of someone. And I, you know, I looked to him. I was like, "What should we do?" He's like, "Are you kidding? You're the adult here. Like, figure it out." I was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, sure." So I went back to the lady at the at the at the you know desk, and I said, "Um, look, I really don't know what to do. Like, what would just tell me what you'd do? Like, obviously, you you wouldn't sleep on a bench. What would you do if you were in my position, hoping she'd give me some advice that she'd sort of hidden away?" And she goes, "How old is the, is your brother?" I was like, "He's twelve. He's well, he's almost eleven. You know, like he's a, you know, I tried to get some sympathy, and she goes." Ah, well, my son is 12 and I wouldn't want him sleeping on a park bench. Here's what will happen. You guys can come and crash at my house tonight. And we're like, no, oh my God, amazing. And we're like, she took us, like, because like I said, the sun was setting, it was getting late. She finished, like, she basically closed up, took us through these, like, cobbled winding streets to this amazing apartment. Uh, and uh, we crashed the night. And because she was a tour guide, she knew the city like the back of her hand. So the next morning, she'd, she'd you know, scripted it all out for us. And we just had the best day ever. So the moral of the story is plan unless you plan on getting lucky. Because, uh, you know, it's made for a great story, but it could have been terrible. And I learned from that, Travis, always book your accommodation in Paris. You know what's so amazing to me is that I, I guess – I don't know if it's amazing or not. It's amazing that she didn't offer it up the first time, but then yeah. did the second time. Like, I'm just wondering what through, went through her head the second time. Maybe it was just perseverance. Maybe it was like, hey, this guy really actually yeah. is not. <laughs> like, now he's here again. He's not going to figure it out. Maybe, I can't trust Maybe him that's to the moral of the story. Yeah. Ask twice, you shall receive. That's right. That is an awesome, awesome story. Well, I hope when I go to Paris next time with you, Actually, I was going to say, I hope I'm not sleeping on a park bench, but that's, a, again, as podcasters, we always need content. So maybe that's a show. Maybe yeah, that's a show. Well, I, made a sh- I made a show of it in the end because my brother came to Paris again. So 10 years on, uh, we'd obviously lost contact with a woman and we made a whole episode trying to track her down. And uh, it was like a kind of tongue-in-cheek episode where we like we went because we honestly didn't know where she was. All we knew was her name was Mary. And we did this whole episode. I hired or almost hired a private detective. They're way too expensive. But I called one. You know, like, we went to a tarot card reader, all trying to help us get there. And I'm not going to spoil the episode just in case any of your listeners want to listen to it. But uh, it was a very interesting journey. All to right, read we it. we will link that up. What it's a podcast episode or a video? Yeah, a podcast episode right. called Finding Mary. If you okay. Google it, I'm sure it's my favorite one that I've done, but it's wildly different to every other one that I've done, but I loved it so much. All right. Well, we will link that up in the show notes, of course. Uh, you can find it if you go to Earful, um, the Earful Tower podcast and, you know, however you listen to this, find that, then go Finding Mary, find that episode. What else do you have coming up in the pipeline that you're working on? I tell you, I'm going to do more. Uh, well, it's going to get back to interviewing interesting people in Paris, which is really what I do. Um, but I want to do... Uh, I want to experiment more with videos. You mentioned something before that we didn't touch on is that viral video that I did. Yeah, let's um, touch on that really quickly because we'll link that up in the show notes as well. Please, yeah. That was, a, that was a big one for me because like the idea was in one minute that I could teach you how to fake French by by producing a series of sounds, essentially. And I just had that idea. I just did it in one take down by the Eiffel Tower, which obviously makes sense. And it went crazy viral. Like it had... For just on my Facebook page, it had a million hits. And then people were, you know when people download it and then upload it with their own text on it? Yeah, it had I, mi- <laughs> millions and millions of hits, which at first I was like, how dare they steal my stuff? And then I was like, yeah, 
you know, like... Right, millions of more people are watching this with someone like exactly. dubbing over it in their own yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they weren't even that imaginative. They just put like this guy fakes French, and then they reshare. But hey, I'm not going to complain because uh, it was a big, it was a big, <laughs> it was a big video for me. But I'm going to do a lot more. Like I said, uh, sort of mixing this idea. I don't know if you experiment with this, but mixing video and podcast a little bit. Um, I. I I have tried a little, not so much, but we're starting a new podcast where we're going to do some of that. We're essentially going to take the audio and from a video and make it a podcast, but trying to, yeah, trying to mesh two things to make it work on, on both well, as a thing. video and I as mean, a podcast. Travel is, uh, especially travel uh, as a topic, but Paris and France as well, is very visual as well. So like when, you know, when I'm traveling around and I'm talking about Carcassonne, that idea of being able to see it. Uh, as well as you know like while we we're talking you were google imaging stuff you know so like that idea of adding an element of visual to it um, i'm gonna experiment with that so uh if people have liked what they heard they can feel free to subscribe to my youtube channel too yeah there we go so you've got a lot if you guys are listening the earful tower podcast or the earful tower.com right that's how they can come that's, find that's you. it yeah it's like a wordplay it's like the eiffel tower but it's for your ears I, I the, french, the french people really struggle <laughs> the french people really struggle with that and i struggle to explain it in french too because it's like wordplay and then like i'll tell you a weird thing about french people when they speak english is you probably already know that they drop the h so instead of saying happy they say happy instead of saying uh you know horse they say horse but when a word begins with a vowel sometimes they add an h which is the weirdest thing. So French people, like it's like they compensate for all the lost H's. So a lot of French people call my show the um, the uh, the Hirful Tower, like that. And I just I love it. And the, the most fun is when they like words like um like instead of saying happy hour, they get it the other way around. So they say happy hour, or like that Quentin Tarantino movie, the the Eightful Hate, you know. So anyway, I went off topic there, but it's the earful tower, not the hearful tower. The, the earful tower, which if you're a native English speaker, you probably got, or or some of you also would understand the Eiffel Tower, the earful tower, which I got right away and thought, I'm always happy when there's like some sort of little pun slash play on words thrown in there. Um, so guys, you can go check that out. Also, can they follow? What do what are they looking for on Instagram or Twitter? How are they following you on social media? Everything, like every single thing, is the Earful Tower, except Twitter, which is Oliver G twenty three. But hey, Twitter, don't you think Twitter's dying a little bit? I do. What do you think? I mean, yeah. I, I like people tweeting at me, so then I can like I like conversing on Twitter. Yeah. Like, hey, send me a note, send me what you want us to talk about on a show, things like that. Yeah. But I don't use it. To fo- yeah, I'm not like searching stuff out on there. That's for sure. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, me neither. I, I find it the least, the least of all the channels. But I find uh, there's so many channels. So if what I say to people is, if you prefer videos, if you prefer podcasts, if you prefer pretty pictures, there'll be something for you somewhere. Just search the word the Eiffel Tower and you'll find it. Yeah, awesome, Oliver. Thanks so much for joining me today. My wife Heather is going to love you, not because she would take a 25 mile. Uh, 2,500 mile, sorry, trip on a scooter. Yeah, whoa, you just cut it a lot short. Yeah, I was going to say, she might do a 25 mile. I got to wean her in a little bit. Uh, Probably probably will not, I won't be able to talk her into that. Although maybe we can have a chat with your wife and then, you know, usually they can like convince each other of that. Um, But she's always been begging me to go back to Paris. I'm always like, no, it's too expensive. You know, I'm too cheap. So now there's this shining light 
on Paris. You've shined the light on it, and it's kind of this shining light in the distance for us. We're like, we're going to go. We're going to do it. We're going to do it in a way that's affordable, and we're going to show other people how to do that as well. So that's awesome. Your wife, your wife Heather, I was listening to your episode, uh, the, the comparison of Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and I could hear in her voice talking about France, and she even made a very good point, which I wanted to bring up, but I forgot until now. She was saying, yeah, Paris, Paris, but it's the rest of France that, that is on offer. Whether, whether she's been there or not, but she was talking about that idea of it being there. Uh, and she was exactly right. And I was thinking about that. Like, you guys, next time you come to Paris, you got to go and see the rest of the country as well. Just another per- – on my own podcast, just another person who's agreeing with Heather. That, I, it seems to be a theme. I'm like, hey, I'm- I agreed with you a lot in that episode as well. I'll be honest. It was fun, though. It was fun. So, guys, if you're listening, you can get the show notes. We've talked about a lot of stuff here. We're going to link up all of Oliver's um, episodes and shows and stuff that we talked about, the specific ones here as well. Um, so you can get all that extra pack of peanuts.com slash shows. Also, if you're traveling around, don't forget you need a good backpack, Tortuga backpacks and Bluffworks for travel clothing. You can go to bluffworks.com or tortugabackpacks.com. You can use our promo code for both of them, EPOP, and that'll get you 10% off any of the items there. Um, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. I, I literally have never been this excited to go back and visit Paris in my life as I am right now. That's what I'm here for, Travis. Thank you, man. I really, truly appreciate it. Guys, go check out the Earful Tower podcast. You know how to get podcasts. You're listening to this one. Go check that out. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in for the continued support that makes us number one rated travel podcast on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it, guys. Until next time, happy free travel. is the world's largest city without a single stop sign in the entire city limits. Now that is nuts.